The Art Newspaper Podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams, auctioneers since 1793. With expertise in more than 60 categories of collecting, its specialists will connect you with your passion. Find what defines you at bonhams.com. Hello and welcome to the Art Newspaper Podcast. I'm Ben Luke. We're doing things a bit differently this week with two podcasts all about Andy Warhol, one today and the next in a few days' time. The occasion is the vast retrospective of Warhol's work opening on the 12th of November at the Whitney Museum of American Art in New York. The Whitney's pulling out all the stops. The show includes 350 works, tracking Warhol's development from the late 1940s to his death in 1987. It also has some intriguing new arguments to make. This first podcast is all about that show, taking a comprehensive look at Warhol's life and work. Our senior editor, Nancy Kenny, went to the Whitney to talk to Donna DeSalvo, the museum's deputy director and senior curator who organised the exhibition. In a catalogue essay for the exhibition, you write that you met with Warhol in the 80s when you were a curator at the Dia Art Foundation. I'd love to hear about those interactions. Sure. Well, um, you know, when I met Warhol in 85, 86, I was a little fuzzy myself about the time, but I believe it was late 85, early 86. It was um, during a time when I was taking forward some exhibitions from the museum's collection, and Dia had this incredible retrospective collection of Warhol's work. And so really that sort of was the framework, if you will, or the context for it all. And, you know, at first he was not very forthcoming. Um, There was an exhibition of the disaster paintings that I'd organized, and he was not really that involved. But then I had this idea to do something that really examined his pre-silkscreen work, the work he had made from 60 to 62, And when I reached out to him, he was very intrigued by the idea, quite interested in it. And it, you know, was at a time when he himself was revisiting hand painting in his collaborations with Basquiat and uh, Keith Haring. I found him a very open, shy, interested artist. Uh, And of course, when you're a young curator, sort of overwhelmed by the mythic status of someone such as Warhol. So I was... um, you know, in my on my own, for me, I was a bit taken aback about how to approach him. But then the conversations became really quite straightforward and very. Um, he was very forthcoming with information. I asked him a lot about the period of time he had worked in the fifties, in particular. I was very interested in that. And then, you know, how it was that he came to make these decisions between the more gestural abstraction and the move toward, you know, something that really appeared printed. Did you stay in touch with him until his death in 87? I did. And, um, you know, I was very interested in, um, once the show opened of the hand-painted work, um, you know, we started having some conversations. I was quite interested in the work that he'd done in the 50s. He was somewhat reluctant about the idea of doing an exhibition such as that. But I went up to the factory on 33rd Street and had some conversations with him and Vincent Fremont at the time because they were working on Andy Warhol's TV. And, you know, they had asked me, well, maybe you have some ideas or want to be involved. Of course, all this was the un- as an unpaid inter- intern or volunteer. Um, but, yeah, we did continue. And I spoke to him maybe a couple of weeks prior to his uh, death. So it was a, you know, like most people in New York, you know, uh, when the news came, it was a shock. 
And, you know, I felt very sad because it, he, you know, well, like with any individual, I mean, he, you know, was, it was an early death for him. And also because I felt we had started to involve this, you know, evolve this kind of really fantastic conversation um, that was, you know, absolutely interested in him as an artist, not as some mythic figure, not as some party person. You know, my interests were very genuine and very much about his art and the process of, of, of how he, his ideas evolved. And I think, you know, that's, that's the sad part of it for me. That was a loss to not be able to continue that conversation and also not to see where he, his work would have gone had he lived. The last Warhol retrospective organized by an American museum was at the Museum of Modern Art in 1989, just two years after his death. Uh, that's almost three decades ago. What new perspectives have you gained since then? Sure. I mean, it's, it's sort of amazing to imagine that, you know, it's been that long since a U.S. institution took on uh, a major retrospective of Warhol. I think in many ways that, you know, there's an entirely new generation, many of whom were not even a not born in 1989. So, you know, I think that uh, there's a generation that's been grappling with both rethinking painting, what painting can be, engagements with abstraction, but also, I think, a, uh, a fluidity or a comfort zone with looking and working with new technologies, media-driven things, um, digital technologies, So that's something that's really struck me immensely in all these years later is to see a new generation for whom Warhol makes total sense. And it made me see, I really felt that Warhol was very ahead of his times and that the perception of his work in the 60s, of course, you know, was for the most part, he had his detractors and still does, but for the most part, it was an incredibly radical move to make a silkscreen uh, to use silkscreen to make a painting. But, you know, in the 70s and 80s, Warhol's work didn't, wasn't quite as popular. And I think that, you know, his use of technology, photography, um, ideas about image making, and of course, in an age of Instagram and so many other social media platforms, you know, Warhol's famous statement, you know, everyone will be famous for 15 minutes, which is probably now 15 seconds, um, rings incredibly true. So on some level, I'm particularly interested in a generation of artists that um, came a couple of decades, several decades after Warhol, and a new audience um, of people who will be coming to Warhol's work in many ways, uh, in many instances, I think, not necessarily for the first time, but to see this level of depth in the work will be, for many people, a, 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 I hope, an eye-opening experience. Does the show cast the 1960s as his biggest moment? No. It really, um, you know, felt very, it was very important to really look through at the trajectory of Warhol's work, to, to consider his career as a whole. And I think there's been so much... Uh, attention paid to the 60s, both, you know, in the critical, particularly on a critical level, uh, and the later work suffered a bit. And it's, there are those people and critics and, uh, and enormous scholarship after Warhol died, of course, when he died in 87. And a lot of work also came out that, you know, had not been shown in his lifetime, really changed perceptions, I think, about Warhol. Warhol's a gay man, especially the early work of the 50s, where you see an aspect of Warhol that isn't as evident in the later work. 
But I think that 70s and 80s period um, was misunderstood. It didn't really look, even though the technique had similarities with 60s, the subject matter was completely different. Uh, yes, Hammer and Sickle, uh, which, you know, he was inspired by graffiti going to Italy during the time of the Red Guard. But then here's an artist who makes skull paintings or paintings of shadows. Um, this subject matter is quite distinct from the more quote-unquote, iconic imagery of the 60s. So what I've tried to do, which I think you do in any artist case, is to really show how those ideas have evolved over time. And I would say if almost half, maybe slightly half the exhibition is also devoted to the work that he made post-1960s. Well, let's dive into his early career. In 1949, more than a decade before the Campbell soup cans or the Mao or the Maryland images we're also familiar with, Warhol started out as an illustrator in commercial advertising, and he became quite a successful one. How did that influence his later work? Well, one of the arguments of the exhibition is that that 50s period was foundational for Warhol because, to a large extent, he was already a talent and an extraordinary draftsman. Um, And I think that in coming to New York, he didn't set out to be a commercial artist. He came with his f- college friend, Philip Perlstein, and they were roommates together. And, you know, they were wanting to be artists, but they had to support themselves. Warhol very readily got a job at Glamour magazine because he, you know, had this great proficiency at drawing. Um, I, I think that throughout the 50s, what he was able to do was to also see very firsthand the mechanics of visual communication, how images are put together, how desire is created in a product, whether it's a shoe um, you know, or a pharmaceutical. And so to be part of that and to see and work with art directors, you know, many extremely sophisticated and uh, really well-trained themselves, some in the Bauhaus, you know, he had a firsthand, a front row seat and an engagement with that process as what you, how you work with an art director, how the art director transmits their idea of how it needs to change. And also he had this, he was immersed in t- the technologies of the period, technologies of the period such as photostat machines, opaque projectors, all the things that you use in to create these, you know, images that are fundamentally their final um, you know, the final their final uh, uh, location is in print. So he's working in a world in which print and particularly increasingly more photography, is the language of popular culture. Um, Even after Warhol won renown in the art world, he insisted that he was a commercial artist. Was that tongue-in-cheek? I think it was tongue-in-cheek. You know, I think it's important to remember that Warhol is, you know, formative years for Warhol were coming to New York when, you know, New York school painting was still extremely, uh, you know, influential. And I think that part of Warhol's project, if you will, was to skewer or subvert the idea of the artist as the romantic figure. And, you know, when you consider someone such as Warhol against the backdrop of artists, you know, such as Mark Rothko or Barnett Newman, um, you know, he really was doing something that was very uh, straightforward, some would say crass and vulgar, but I think that he had this awareness of how, um, you know, you certain that there is a commercial side to being an artist, uh, that you sell your work. 
Now, you know, he's been criticized for that because he's so, um, you know, that, that portion of things, that activity, you know, has been so emphasized. And, you know, there were many people who felt that he was a sellout, you know, that he was a con artist. Um, but I think that there was something about Warhol's understanding as this working class kid from Pittsburgh about a certain reality of paying the bills. And, you know, I think he found a way to make it part of his art form, both in terms of the works themselves, but also the, a performance. Because I think there's a lot of Warhol in his way that is, you know, a mask, a way of presenting himself to the world. And it's a little almost like when you think about in the 50s him working for certain magazines where they had to create an aura of mystery about a product. You don't want to say too much um, because you want to create that desire. And I think he was playing with that idea very much so. Um, But I think he also wanted to make money and loved making money and was deeply, deeply ambitious and a workaholic too. You write that early in his career, he seems to have run into censorship when he tried to show Mm -hmm. at art galleries. What were they objecting to? Well, you know, it was many of his early paintings um, were the subject matter, you know, would, was mostly figurative, although that he would use different patterns to obscure the image or he would mimic the brushstrokes of, you know, some, I argue, one, some brushstrokes looks like Ed Reinhardt uh, or an Adolf Gottlieb. Um, he, there's a particular incident that led me to that conclusion, and it's really one that was recounted to me by Philip Perlstein. Warhol had made a series of paintings in around the late 50s that he asked Perlstein to take to the Tanninger Gallery, which was a cooperative gallery where many of the Abex painters were involved. The subject was of two boys kissing. And, of course, they took, he dutifully took it to the gallery, and they laughed, <laughs> so it wasn't, I, I don't know if censorship's the right word, but it certainly was not at all in sync with the kind of subject matter at that time. Um, that's not to say there weren't artists such as Larry Rivers in particular, who Warhol credits as an influence, who were playing with that kind of figurative subject matter. And also that had this, you know, kind of coded, campy, coy uh, aspect to it. But it, it was not what they were going to show at those galleries. Well, back then, the art world was dominated by macho, abstract expressionists, wasn't it? Absolutely. I mean, you know, it's the women, the great women of that period from Grace Hardigan and, and, you know, and Joan Mitchell are, you know, got their due, but much later on in a lot of ways. So, yes, it was a very male, male defined, although a number of women who were working at that time. And, you know, you have early Johns and Rauschenberg working at that time. So, you know, Warhol's part of a group of artists who, um, for whom that subject matter would, would not have appealed or that bravura, you know, um, was just out of sync. And he's also younger. He's a younger generation. So um, it's, a, it's an extremely difficult time. And, uh, but he keeps, you know, he's persistent in making his work like any, any driven artist. Well, the show has examples of his early hand-painted work. There's the Coca-Cola bottle, for example, which he apparently painted in a drippy, abstract expressionist style, but he also painted it in a way that resembles a commercially printed image. Yeah, I mean, this is really seen as a kind of breakthrough moment for him because much of the work that he was making, and you know, and many of the other artists, by the way, Roy Lichtenstein, uh, James Rosenquist, there were many artists who were still in that late 50s period you know, were making, were interested in subject matter, but still feeling that they had to, in some way, 
tip their hat to abstract expressionism. So Warhol made two versions of the painting, and one was a giant Coke bottle that had drips on it, and he invited, it's a very famous story, he invited four friends, Irving Blum, Ivan Karp, Emile D'Antonio, and Henry Goldsoller to look at the painting, and he wanted to see what they thought about leaving behind the drips, essentially, and and then what about the other image, which really appeared printed and very mechanical, and there was very little trace of the artist's hand, and they all preferred the tighter version. But I find it fascinating that, you know, he he nonetheless needed that you know, I've often said now that Warhol's way of asking everyone's opinion would probably be called maybe a degree of crowdsourcing today. But he was very smart to get, you know, these are four extraordinary people that he's asking who are very knowledgeable and very much tapped into what was going on in contemporary art at the time. So, you know, he wanted their opinion. And thank, thankfully, <laughs> you know, one often conjectures what might have happened if they'd said we prefer the drippy version maybe we're all still would have gone forward with the other well then in 62 you see him shifting to a mechanical silkscreen technique was that a kind of breakthrough well i think there's an evolution and that's why i think the 50s is so important because he's already very much engaged with using techniques of reproduction to construct his images he goes from you know he used carved uh, gum erasers then he moves to stencils and so eventually and there's a famous uh, it's always often described with warhol's very earliest technique was this blotted line where he would blot on one side he would draw on one side of the piece of paper uh, in ink, blot it with the other, analogous to a monotype, and it would create this kind of quirky line that looked very much like Ben Sean, who was very popular amongst commercial, amongst art directors at the time. But it also allowed him to make copies of it and even had a couple of assistants as early as the early 50s. So in some ways, the move to the silk screen is seems inevitable. What differentiates it from that earlier time was the the insertion or the use of the photograph, because now you're moving from a something he draws himself, and there are some silk screens that were are based on drawings, but to use the silk screen, photo, the photo silk screen to make painting is this really when form and content come together. So he's using the very technique through which these images are disseminated in the world to make the painting. And that's the radical shift. That's the paradigm. Well, you also have the paintings he made by borrowing from journalistic photography. He depicts accidents like car crashes, Mm -hmm. for example, in his Death and Disaster series. And then you have the electric chairs and the race riots and the Jacqueline Kennedy in mourning. What was the fascination with all that? Was he obsessed with death? Well, you know, I, I think there's often, I mean, I think we're all obsessed with it in one way or another. So, But so is journalism. I mean, you know, the spectacle of violence and, you know, it, that's a moment of Look magazine, Life magazine. So it's a very different era than we live in today where you have multiple sources, multiple uh, uh, places to go for news. But, you know, I think there is that, awareness of, you know, when we see accidents, and I, you know, I'll admit to it, you know, you're on the road, you see the accident, you're compelled to look. So I do think that he was tapping into something that had to do with, you know, this compulsion that we have to look, uh, almost the, the kind of disbelief to also see 
uh, something so horrific. Um, at the time, he talks about, because he was going to do his show in Paris, and he says, I think I'll call it Death in America. So there's a lot of different, you know, th- this is where, you know, the literature and Warhol's own statements and other people's uh, recounting of the moment can leave you a little bit, you know, um, your head spinning. But he does say something about in around December that, you know, this is a time when people will be on the road. And it is true that um, just prior to any holiday, we do get this something from the radio or TV, and we're anticipating, you know, a number of of accidents over the holiday period. So I think that, you know, he picked up on that. And I think there's something more there. And that's why I think that's such an extraordinary series, because there is something, you know, you're going from the celebrities of Marilyn Monroe and Elvis Presley and Troy Donahue and Natalie Wood, and now you move into people who are anonymous, and their their celebrity, if one wants to call it that, comes about, you know, through a tragic accident, or in the case of, uh, the, you know, the, the mustard race riot, as he called it, you know, the civil rights protests in Birmingham. So, you know, it's, it's a vulnerability of, one, of also when people are threatened in that way. And there's one in particular called Suicide Fallen Body that depicts the um, tragic death of a woman who jumps off the Empire State Building. And she is nestled in the top of a car that she falls into and doesn't look dead. And it's, it's probably the most, I believe, one of the most haunting because it's, it's a very vulnerable, something about the framing uh, of the image, all, of course, taken by photojournalists. These were newswire photographs. Some of them were never printed because they were too grotesque. Others made it into newspaper. And the one I just described of the suicide was uh, printed twice in Life magazine. So I think they speak to an America also that is one where violence is a huge part of our history, um, where yeah, I have my own interpretation. You know, are, are we in some ways punished for consuming? There's one tuna fish disaster of two women who uh, both are tragically uh, die as a result of poisoned tuna fish. So it's a, it's a very, it's maybe the flip side of, you know, a certain kind of post-war optimism. Uh, and they, I believe they remain some of his most searing paintings. And, of course, the electric chair, um, which is just... Uh, you know, a startling image uh, to see. And, of course, Warhol makes the one in the show is a lavender disaster painting. So, in a sense, the absurdity, the irony, and, and the horrific nature, and maybe even our disregard or our, you know, the way in which you can look at an image and is it, what is it really about? And you see this lone electric chair from Sing Sing Prison and the recognition that this is a means of capital punishment and then it's made beautiful by Lavender. It, it really sets up inevitable, you know, incredible contradiction in what you're looking at. So do you see these works as having a political thrust? I do. I mean, I think that that is a subtext in many of Warhol's works, not all. Some would dispute that. There's a lot of debate, especially in the critical community, about was Warhol political in what he was doing? Um, You could read just about any work of art in a political way. I think that they are. I think that that, but there, I think that's evident even in his pictures of soup cans. You know, I think that there's a a certain kind of um, confirmation of obsessions, desires, and at the same time, it's putting it in our face. So there's a, there's a duality. And I think that Warhol 
I've always felt he picked up on what I've seen as the twin contradictions of, a, of the American psyche, which is the desire for innovation, but also for conformity. Later in 68, Warhol is bad, badly wounded in a shooting, assassination attempt, really. Um, the shooter is Valerie Solanas, an occasional actor in his films. What impact did that have on his career? Mm. It's a very good question because I, I think that many people feel that after 68, you know, he, of course, it was, he was horrifically injured and nearly died, was brought back to life on the operating table uh, and carried those scars with him throughout. Uh, but in the exhibition, we have a section devoted to a lot of the experiments that he was doing during that period. So rather than to see it, which some have, you know, seen it as the end of his great period of innovation of the 60s, I think it's a a bit of a marker of the next kinds of experiments. That said, I, you know, I, I know that there were massive changes at the factory, bulletproof door that was installed. It was no longer anyone could just show up. And, you know, Warhol's enterprises probably came, became more like a business, very different than the 60s model. Um, and so the production itself uh, is, is, sounds more organized. I wasn't there, so, you know, but everything that I'm aware of and people I've spoken to who, of course, have wor- worked with Warhol during that period, um, you know, there was a, a, the Interview Magazine is launched. Um, many, many commissions um, come Warhol's way. Um, but then immediately, you know, a couple of just a few years later in 1972, he makes his starts his Mao series. So it's really the beginning of another period of intense work and, and, and pushing the envelope of painting. We'll be back with more from Donna DeSalvo after this. It may surprise people to learn that George Siegel was in fact a pop artist. While peers such as Warhol or Lichtenstein were influenced by pop culture and mass consumerism, Siegel explored the human condition by creating casts of ordinary people going about their everyday lives. Siegel first rose to prominence in the early 1960s with his pioneering life-size plaster casts of figures, which he would create by wrapping models in plaster bandages, an innovative use of an everyday medium that was unprecedented in art history. In the 1970s, he began to cast his forms in bronze and then paint them uniformly white. One of the very first of these groundbreaking pieces, a life-size work called The Dancers, is the highlight of Bonner's post-war and contemporary art sale in New York on the 14th of November. It's the largest and most impressive work by Siegel to come to auction. As Jacqueline Towers Perkins of the post-war and contemporary art department says, it's a defining work of Siegel's career and of 20th century sculpture. To find out more, visit bonhams.com. Welcome back. We pick up where we left off with Donna DeSalvo, focusing on Warhol's work after his near-death experience when he was shot in 1968. We'll learn about his films, his portrait commissions and his still lives, his prefiguring of social media, his appropriations of Leonardo's Last Supper and the Catholicism that underpinned his interest in that work. We'll also hear about his relationship with a certain Donald Trump. But we begin with the factory, the epicentre of cool, a hangout place for Warhol stars, a site of debauchery and extravagance, which celebrities from Mick Jagger to Edie Sedgwick would pass through. But it was also a creative engine. So, Nancy Kenny asked Donna DeSalvo, how involved was Warhol in everyday production there? 
Well, I mean, of course, it's a place where he made his paintings, so he was silk screening there. And a lot of the films are made at the factory, um, shot actually within the factory. So, uh, you know, I think that he was a presence there, and uh, and he was a kind of director uh, in terms of attracting people. I think a lot of people came to him and then letting people do their thing, you know. So in a sense, I've always said, thought he was a bit of the art director at that time. You know, he had raw material in all of these different characters who were uh, my you know, who were attracted to him. And, um, but it's a, it's a film set in a lot of ways. It's both painting studio and film set. And, you know, uh, I'm, you know, clearly the site for a lot of acting out and a lot of drug taking and, you know, craziness. Um, you know, it's, it's one of the points in the exhibition is there's a group, there's a section devoted to a group of drawings from about an, fashion photographer named Otto Fenn that Warhol gravitated to in the early 50s. And he had a kind of salon of sorts, um, which was largely gay men, and they would dress up, and Warhol did a series of caricatures. So I've likened that in some ways to a kind of first factory, because if you see the factory, you could see it as a salon. Factory was a great phrase for it because again it's so contrary to the idea of the artist alone in their studio it's this industrial production but it is also a, a kind of really amazing salon um, that attracted many creative individuals themselves who wanted to be who were actors wanted to be actors writers um, you know uh, movie stars that came that sought Warhol out and you know the epicenter of a of a kind of in, you know incredible uh, uh, social phenomena. I understand that the Whitney has a special connection to Warhol's films, which he started making in '63, right? Mm. Yes. Um, um, from '63 to '68, he made something like 650 films. It's 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 mind-boggling, actually. And so a number of years ago, John Hanhard, who was then the curator of film and video at the Whitney. Um, started to had conversations with Warhol about his films and preserving his films, and that really gave birth to the War to the Whitney's Catalogue Raisonné project. Um, and my um, late colleague Callie Angel, who was the author of the first Catalogue Raisonné of the films, which just focused on the screen test, worked with the Museum of Modern Art, who houses the actual films and the Warhol Museum uh, when it when it came into existence to really begin the process of looking not only the films you know that were shown but in numbers and numbers of reels of material that had never been seen and they have dutifully gone through the bulk of it and looked at it and noted the language in it who was in it um, and this is an incredible piece of scholarship because unlike looking at a painting which you know one devotes a certain degree of time, but, you know, with time-based media, one can only imagine. So that's been a long-standing project of the Whitney, and the exhibition will include, both in the show itself, we'll be showing um, a number of films uh, as on a 16-millimeter projection, and also my colleague Claire Henry has put together a film program that will be on view, uh, be available throughout the run of the exhibition, because it's an enormous and very fascinating part of Warhol's output. Well, given the personalities we meet in the films, do you see the films as a kind of portraiture? I do. I think that, that you know, if you think of the screen tests alone, 
Um, you know, they are portraits, but they're portraits that allow for something else because they're filmed and because of the element of time. Warhol's interest in, port- interest in portrait of, portraiture, of course, is, is evident through the 50s where he has, he's sketching a lot of men, he's sketching other people, he's a great social observer. And so the films, of course, allow for both a much more psychological penetration of the subject uh, by having them sit very still in, in front of a, a stationary camera, but also to pursue, you know, many ideas about um, how far you could push a film, how far you could push the medium itself, you know, whether with Warhol, he, running them at a faster speed, allowing some things, the strobe cut, different things that when the film can't, when you run out of tape, is evident that most people edit out. And he's part of that, you know, avant-garde film community, of Jonas Mikas and uh, Stan Vanderbeek. I mean, a lot of other filmmakers who were experimenting in this way. I think it's the, 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 just the sheer number of films that Warhol made that is, you know, really mind-boggling and just, again, evidence of his voracious appetite uh, as a visual artist uh, to play out ideas. In the 70s, then, we see him doing commission portraits uh, for Jet Set Society. You have socialites and movie people and industrialists. Did Warhol need those commissions financially, or was this partly a way of staying in the limelight? Probably a bit of both, but I think he... I think he, you know, in a sense, he sort of was playing with the very convention of how that kind of portraiture has existed, whether, you know, it was in the era of Velasquez and, you know, the, an artist is commissioned to do a royal portrait or, you know, up to John Singer Sargent or Robert Henry. You know, those artists were equally working in a similar way. And oftentimes they were sought out by celebrities, social, well, socialites. Well, I don't know, celebrity is a, is a more 20th century term, but, you know, certainly wealthy individuals, socialites, philanthropists. So I think that for Warhol, you know, one has to remember that a lot of the work that he made in the 70s and the 80s was not commercially successful. So he was supporting the enterprise there. Uh, through those portrait commissions. And they start out, even in the 60s, there's an Ethel Skull portrait that's in the exhibition. There's an incredible portrait of an um, insurance executive in the Midwest that'll be in the show. And he's interested in portraiture throughout. The idea then of the commission portrait really just takes over. And, you know, people, I think it's like with any, you know, any well-known artist to have your portrait painted by a certain well-known figure is it conveys its own sort of status symbol and we have a huge uh, group of the portraits in the exhibition that'll be in the lobby gallery of the museum and they range because some of them are more endearing there's a great portrait of his mother julia of his of his early dealers iliana sonnabend um, artists that he uh, traded work for, and then, you know, right up through Dolly Parton and uh, the Shah of Iran and his wife and her sister. And I do think there's a qualitative difference between the portraits where he, uh, my argument is he, you can see a bit of a difference between the portraits where he knew someone, where there was an actual connection, and those where he's just brilliant at having figured out a system that allowed him to make them very quickly. Um, and get paid for them. And sometimes if people didn't want them, they probably regret it that years later. That grid of portraits on the um, lobby walls, it has kind of an Instagram effect, doesn't it? 
Well, I think it's an early Facebook, <laughs> you know, because if you think about it, this desire that, you know, we have to feel recognized, to feel liked, um, is very much a part of our culture. And uh, I've seen this as a, as, a, as a somewhat of a Facebook of its era. Obviously, it's not comprehensive. But one of my uh, colleagues, um, Mark Loacana, who's done a lot of work mapping the portraits and really who, how they be- came about, who, you know, who was the contact. Sometimes it was Warhol, sometimes it was a dealer, sometimes it was a friend. You know, you see this incredible network of how uh, these individuals are even linked back to Warhol. So in some way, Warhol's always at the center of it all. Um, but it is in, in many ways. It's, it's a Facebook. It's, a, it's about being liked. It's about how you can have agency to make yourself into a star. I, you, now we can do that in a way that I don't think it would, would have been un, unimaginable, actually was not possible in Warhol's era. I mean, now you can create your own, you know, you can become famous for just putting your images on fin- on Instagram. It's, 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 it's a, there's a good and a bad of, of that desire uh, to feel that the only way that you exist is to be uh, liked in the concept of that like or dislike, or that you, you know, absolutely desire or need to record every aspect of your life. And uh, Warhol was doing that, and he prefigures, in a sense, what has happened in our culture. Well, I imagine you'll have hundreds of museum visitors taking selfies in the galleries. I absolutely. I mean, I you know that's there's no rule against anyone doing that. The one thing I absolutely hope is that people really look at the art because the only reason we're doing this exhibition and I am doing this exhibition is to really show how extraordinary an artist Warhol was, how influential he was, and how he opened up certain avenues for generations that came after. Yeah, the show also includes a sampling of still lifes from the 70s, doesn't mm-hmm. it? Yes, it does. Um, what, what is this repeated use of a skull and a hammer and sickle? Right. Well, I mean, the hammer and sickle comes about, you know, in that early 70s moment, Warhol returns to something he was already doing in the 50s, which was to create still lives, very conventional genre for an artist. And he, in fact, in the 50s, worked with his, his friend Edward Wallowich, and they would light them, uh, and Warhol would draw them. It, it sort of starts actually from a promotional moment. He, Warhol produces this, writes this, writes this book, Andy Warhol from A to B and back again, from which our title comes in 1975. He had this idea to make a promotional photograph for his book, and he sets up a still life with different objects, one of which is the book. And from that, it sparks an interest on his part with this format. So the hammer and sickle comes about because he's going to Italy. He's doing a commission for the Ladies and Gentlemen series, and he sees a lot of graffiti of hammer and sickle in Italy at that time with the Red Guard and the politics of the moment. And he he has this idea to, you know, set up a hammer and sickle. And it's the lighting of it that this very intense lighting that is allows him to play with a lot of different pictorial ideas, different combinations, and the shadow becomes as much a part of the subject of the work as the actual object. And he's in Paris, and he he picks up a skull, which is a very traditional motif for an artist. Um, The skull is memento mori. You know, always think about Cezanne's late skulls, the skulls he made in his late work. And he starts to experiment with that. They're very, they're 
lit in such a way that the shadow is a very evident shadow. So much has been made about the skull and, you know, Warhol's own, you know, obsession with death. And, you know, I think that when you look at it within the history of art, because Warhol always keeps his foot in one, in two worlds, one in the world of popular commercial culture and one in the world of art, the history of art. And the fact that that skull, you know, the idea of the skull, I mean, my gosh, you look at, you know, if you've ever gone in Vienna to the crypts of the Habsburgs, they're filled with carved skulls. So the symbolism of the skull throughout history is, is you know, an actually really a, a major one. And it's also, I think it's either he or someone who has said, you know, it is a, it's a portrait of everyone. So in a sense, if you think about you can think about the skull as being a uni- kind of universal portrait. So, uh, but that sets him off also to exploring the shadow in his work. And of course, then the great epic series that he makes that the Dia Foundation owns of called Shadows, uh, 102, it's a painting in 102 parts, is, is you know, one of his most dramatic and most overtly abstract works and an you know, extraordinary tour de force that will be, parts of what will be on view here in New York, sponsored by, by DIA. Mm-hmm. In the 1980s, then, you see some art historical appropriations, don't you? I mean, like the Last Supper paintings. Yes, he just goes through a period of time where he, he looks at de Chirico, Edvard Munch, The Scream. He goes through sort of the Renaissance. Uh, he's interested in Renaissance paintings. I think one of the most um, complex topics he takes on is Leonardo's Last Supper. And he was doing them in his studio, and his one of his old-time dealers, Alexander Iolis, came, came to the studio, saw them, and had this idea that Warhol would present these paintings very near to the Leonardo's original and we have an extraordinary painting in the show that combines camouflage with the Last Supper image. And, you know, the, the, to, I think it's a, it's a very alluring, very mysterious painting. Uh, it functions on many, many different levels. Of course, you know, it became known after his death that he was a Catholic and very devout Catholic. Um, but to quote also a Leonardo painting, which he'd already done with his Mona Lisa painting in 1963, you know, this is where Warhol looks at also a painting that itself entered into popular culture. So, you know, he works from really cheap maquettes or, you know, little plaster images of the Last Supper or there, there's some prints that he uses. So this is a work of art like the Mona Lisa um, that, you know, crossed over, let's say, from the walls of the Louvre and into the just the, the world of pop culture, commercial culture. And so his choices, I think that's the most successful of them. He did do other works of art by other artists, but I, I think this is the one that where he's able to do something with the image. He connects with it. And the ones we have, the one we have also conflates camouflage with it as well. With The Last Supper. Yes, um, it came as a surprise to me to read that he was actually an observant Catholic. Did he go to Mass? Apparently, and apparently he was, you know, served soup, went to a soup kitchen. Um, of course, he grows up in a Byzantine Catholic family in Pittsburgh, and so that is his background. But, it, you know, it was not something I was aware of and not something I focused on. But again, I think this is information that what became if not more available, people focused on it more posthumously. So, you know, his memorial service, which I did go to, was at St. Patrick's Cathedral, and, you know, it was a 
star-studded uh, group there. Uh, and the statement was made by John Richardson in his eulogy, you know, talking about Warhol and the church that he would go and serve soup at. And, you know, you sort of, really? is that, I mean, those close to him would know this. I wasn't an intimate. But, um, but I think it just reveals also, you know, him as a human being. And it's so difficult because Warhol created this myth around himself that in many ways, I think, obscured his work as an artist and also his, you know, love of the commercial, love of money. Many of these things, I think, prevented people from, in some ways, seeing the real talent in his work. Um, and, you know, we, we have difficulty in some ways. We expect artists to have to live a certain kind of life or to be a certain kind of way. I think that's so much less the case in the last few decades. But his, I think the Catholicism to me is also very important in terms of his understanding of the icon. So, you know, growing up in a religion where icons, where gold is used in such way, such a way, you know, he, he was very aware of the, of how, of the power of the image you know, both in terms of confirming belief, but also almost as a kind of tool of propaganda, if you will. So the the idea of believing in what you're seeing, what is it that you believe when you see, when you look at an image? And particularly if it's a something that exists in the world and it's a brand, you know, all of those things play into it. And I, I really believe fundamentally that what Warhol's whole project comes to and the shadows in particularly make clear, is the illusion that we're looking at something that is an illusion, and it, our mind wants to believe it's the real thing, whether it's the Coke bottle or, you know, even the Leonardo painting. You know, at the time, the Leonardo's um, Last Supper, there was tremendous debate about um, restoring it, because what we're looking at, of course, is not as it had appeared when da Vinci made it. It was done on a fresco. It had peeled from the wall. There was debate, should it be left as it is? And Warhol even says he preferred it in, his de- in its deteriorated state. So this whole idea of what a work of art is, but also beyond, because I think because he has, he m- moves over, he's able to somehow bring together the world of popular culture and the world of art history and the world of art that somehow it's not just that we're looking at a, a painting, but we're looking at a painting about something, an object, a brand that's trying to get us to believe something, to buy it. So it's, it's a very complicated enterprise within it. Now, Warhol obviously longed to be a legend, didn't he? Um, time after time, he reproduced his own image and self-portraits, but there's still something a little mysterious about him, a kind of self-concealment. Um, through your work on the show, have you do you feel that you've gotten to understand and know him? Well, I could never say that I know him in that sense, but I think that you know you see as an individual. I, I think that many there was a sort of hidden part to how he lived his life. Clearly, we're just talking about his Catholicism, you know, and other things that were not commonly known. So. There was a dis- there's a distance, you know, whether it was being an insider and an outsider, because I think he was that to a certain extent. Um, you know, it's like a way you're on the street and off the street. Um, but I also think that, you know, there was an air of mystery that he purposely created around himself. You know, he begins using his own self-portraits 
around 64 and um, makes himself subject. But of course, the self-portrait is not a new idea in the history of art. Um, But eventually also he does become a brand. And in the 80s, he appears in TV commercials. He appears in print commercials for various projects and products, mostly outside of the U.S. He does one for Japanese, a commercial for Japanese television. Um, so it's the level of product endorsement in the days, the old days where, you know, Joan Crawford sold Pepsi-Cola. So that's not a new thing. Um, we still have, you know, um, Matthew McConaughey, I think, selling cars. And so it's not a kind of, you know, new idea. But, you know, the, the issue of, you know, the late self-portraits that he makes, which, of course, with the fright wig, where, you know, there's a mysterious figure there. And I think most really good artists often say little about themselves. So I, I think for all that Warhol said in the diaries and all of, you know, and he's out there more than any other artist I can imagine to some extent, um, you know, Oscar Wilde certainly was someone who put out a lot of information about himself. So he's a little bit in that, you know, in that vein. But you could never know everything. And I think that's the same thing with his works of art, that when it comes down to it, they remain mysterious, as any great work of art, uh, I think, does. I've always believed that the test of a great work of art is that no matter how how many times you go back to it, you can't completely figure it out. And Mm -hmm. I think that's the case with Warhol. Warhol apparently met Donald Trump, didn't he? (laughs) several times, and he writes about Trump and Trump's first wife, Ivana, in his diaries. I also see that Trump has quoted Warhol in a couple of his books. How do you think your show connects with this Trumpian moment we're in? Well, it absolutely, you know, Warhol did have exchanges with Donald Trump. Of course, they were both on the scene in New York, and um, Trump had asked him to make a painting of one of his buildings. I think it was of Trump Tower. And Warhol did it, and then Trump rejected it because he said that the color combo didn't, he didn't like the color combo. And I think Warhol quotes in his diaries that, you know, he thought Donald Trump was really cheap. So, (laughs) you know, I think it's a great question because I do think that because Warhol's work is so identified with the United States and because the subject matter is absolutely drawn from, for the most part, the U.S., that it's an interesting moment to look at what is being projected in that work and that optimism of the 60s and the post-war era and a very different kind of America in America on the, on the you know, as the savior of the world, uh, you know, the Marshall Plan. I mean, we were in a very different place then than we are now. So I think it's very interesting to look at that and to compare these two times when we're in an extremely different different situation, uh, both domestically and globally. You know, I think the other thing is to, you know, think about um, the way Warhol creates these fictions through his films of the 60s and the, you know, the inevitable rise culturally, and this is not something I would say was something Warhol can be, you know, said he did, that he, inf- that he uh, created, but, you know, we live in an age of celebrity culture and of reality TV. And so it's quite interesting to think of that, you know, cinema verite that started to happen in a lot of Warhol's films where you see it as you see it. There's no script. 
it's an acting out. Um, and then there was that famous program, The Loud Family, I think in 1970, where they track the family, a California family, with cameras in the home and, you know, all manner of things, divorces, a son coming out gay, they all come out before camera and on camera. And, you know, it's not, you know, to go from that to our reality TV obsessed culture, which has been the case now for at least 10 years or so, um, is a, is a, you know, it's a very frightening idea because it starts to raise this question of what is true? What are we looking at? What can be manufactured? And so, you know, I, I think it's a very interesting moment to look at Warhol in particular because, you know, when you plan an exhibition, you never know what the world is going to be. And I think many of us didn't expect we would be where we are now. So I'm very interested to see. There may be some who see Warhol as the cause uh, of it all. I've had people who've said that to me. I, I don't think any one artist could claim such a power in the world. But I think that he, like most artists, anticipates something and has that antennae. And I do think that there's something within Warhol's work which has a dark side uh, and and also uh, you know, says something about aspects of the United States, our love of capitalism, our love of consumerism. Uh, you know, if all we are is a society of consumers, we're in a very sad place. So, and you could be consuming all kinds of things. It doesn't have to be products. It can also be, you know, um, information that's fed to us. So it's, it's a very, you know, potent time, I think, to raise many of these issues. And I, I hope that some of this, you know, comes into the conversation uh, in terms of the exhibition. Uh, you, you know, you want a work of, you, I believe the work remains um, extremely relevant. And now we'll test out what that relevance really means. Thank you for joining us, Donna. My pleasure. Thank you. Andy Warhol, from A to B and back again, is at the Whitney Museum, New York, from the 12th of November until the 31st of March next year. The shadow paintings at Dia that Donna DeSalvo referred to will be one of the topics we discuss in the next Warhol podcast, which you'll be able to hear from Tuesday the 13th of November. And we'll also talk to the artist Jeremy Della about meeting Warhol and his enduring relevance. I hope you can join us then. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the podcast. And if you're on Twitter, follow us at Tan Audio. That's at T-A-N Audio. You can also follow our main Twitter account and Facebook at The Art Newspaper. And our Instagram is theartnewspaper.official. For the moment, though, thanks to Nancy Kenny and especially to Donna DeSalvo. And thanks to you for listening. See you soon. The Art Newspaper podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams. Find what defines you at bonhams.com.